Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Today we're continuing our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in Matthew chapter 17. We're entitling this episode, The Transfiguration and Our Transformation. Just going to read you a couple of verses from Matthew 17, starting with verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. This may surprise you, but it's my opinion that Matthew 17 could be one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible uh, for everyone, uh, but especially for parents and parishes wishing to raise up lifelong disciples. And by that, I mean young people who, as they mature and enter their late teens and 20s, are resistant to peer conformity to social media and our secular culture and rather conform themselves to the life of Christ. But Matthew 17, I would compare to a few essential vitamins and minerals for our health. I've become a little bit of a health nut because I've discovered both through horticulture for raising sheep and for human health, particularly there's some overlooked minerals that no longer are present in our industrial agriculture, plowing up our soils. And as a result, they can have great health consequences. There's one, it's called a micronutrient. You just need a tiny bit of it, but it has a big effect. And to me, that's Matthew 17. That little micronutrient that I'd like to focus on is selenium. And selenium is a micronutrient, and it's interesting. The folks in Finland are far beyond us here in the United States because by law, a farmer in Finland cannot put fertilizer on his fields without selenium added to the fertilizer because they realize that if you have just a little bit of this, health ensues and cancer rates drop. How about that? Just a little tiny micronutrient. Well, Matthew 17 talks about the transfiguration. And I know as Catholics, uh, we have a feast every year of the transfiguration. But to me, that's kind of our problem is that we have a feast and we focus properly on the transfiguration. Then we go about our business for the rest of the church year. But our spiritual life could be anemic in certain areas if we don't pay a lot of attention to Matthew 17, especially when our culture wants us as Christians to conform to its ways. Now, there are Christians who have a incredibly strong appreciation for Matthew 17. And those Christians are 
Eastern Catholics and the Orthodox churches. You know the Orthodox churches like the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox, but also there are Eastern Catholics, and Eastern Catholics are very similar in many ways to the Orthodox churches, especially with their focus on the transfiguration, except they're in union with the Pope. And I'm holding in my hand a great apostolic letter from St. John Paul II. It's not very long. I think it's only, what, 56 pages, but it's entitled The Light of the East. And in here, John Paul II wanted to alert particularly Catholics in the West of the riches that we could be missing from our spiritual diet, so to speak. And here's what he said, and I quote, the members of the Catholic Church of the Latin tradition must also be fully acquainted with the treasure with Eastern traditions. And as far as I read this, when he says must and be fully acquainted, this doesn't sound like an option or a casual thing. And he goes on to say that the Christian East was the original setting in which Christianity was born. So we can't overlook it. He goes on to say, it is earnestly recommended that Catholics avail themselves more often of the spiritual riches of the Eastern Fathers. And when it comes to the focus in the East, like if I was to wander down the highway here from the Family Life Center to Bob Jones University and uh, had a cup of coffee with somebody and they wanted to make sure that I was a Christian according to their fundamentalist Protestant tradition, they would say, well, Steve, are, are you born again? Um, and I would understand that. Have you had a conversion experience? You personally attached to Christ and uh, Catholics might have different questions, but in the East, the focus and the goal of the Christian life stems right from Matthew chapter 17. John Paul II emphasized that the crown jewel among the Eastern Christians is the teaching on divinization, deification, or theosis. And those are three words that all mean the same thing. I'll repeat them. Divinization, deification, and theosis. And in the West, the only people who are teaching something remotely about this, or at least emphasizing it, are the New Agers who have hijacked this into an erroneous way and really twisted it to lead people into darkness. But I believe this could be one of the essential missing ingredients in our spiritual diet as Western Catholics, what is taught for us in Matthew chapter 17. And what's that ingredient? Okay, well, in Matthew 17, you have the transfiguration. And if we're going to keep from being conformed into the image of our secular culture, into the image of what's portrayed on social media, into the image of what's portrayed in the music scene, the movie scene, and whatever else, well, if we're not going to conform, we have to be transformed. We don't stay in the middle. We're always moving. And the point being, Christ's transfiguration, what went on right here in Matthew 17, 
isn't just a historical event to kind of have a feast day once a year to remember as a nice event that happened in the past, but this has ongoing significance for ourselves as Christians, and especially our children. They need to know about this. So we need to pull together just two or three verses to grasp what's going on here in Matthew 17 and how it has such significance for the life of the Christian. Okay, in Matthew 17, in verse 2, I already read, but I'm just going to read a portion of this second verse again. And he was transfigured before them. Okay, the word transfigured is from a Greek word that we get the English word metamorphosis. It's that total, complete change from one form into another. And Jesus has his face shone like the sun. His garments were white as light. Okay, that's Matthew 17. Now, we're going to pair Matthew 17 with 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. This is talking about Christians. St. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, every now and then, it's worthwhile going through all the excedrin headaches of learning New Testament Greek, because in reading however carefully you would, Matthew 17 and 2 Corinthians 3, you wouldn't put them together because Matthew 17, 2 says transfigured and 2 Corinthians 3 says changed. These are the exact same words in the original language before it was translated into English. Uh, the English Standard Version, a good version, for the same verse in 2 Corinthians says, and we with unveiled face behold the glory, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, to be transfigured is to be transformed. And St. Paul is saying that the Christian experience he describes using the same word as used in Matthew 17 for the transfiguration. And if you don't get this, and I'm not talking, this isn't like a little something to tuck away in the far reaches of your brain. St. John Paul II said, we need to pay attention to the treasures from the East. This is where Christianity arose. And the common view that many of us had, and I would say first person myself for many years, it was kind of like a vitamin deficient uh, approach to the transfiguration. And it's also a vitamin deficient approach to the entire Christian life. And what do I mean by that? Okay, I realize I'm a Christian and I'm a committed Christian, but I regard my life in certain compartments, okay? Uh, I like the outdoor life. Uh, I like studying the Bible and going to church. That's my spiritual life. But we tend to compartmentalize things. Uh, you might like the arts, and then yet you go to church and have your spiritual life, and you realize that a lot of the things that we have in our lives, our various compartments, 
aren't going to exist anymore after we're in heaven. And there's going to be a different focus and that type of thing, different priorities. Now, the deficient Christianity sees the Christian life as kind of humming along in this life, and then it takes on another dimension once we enter the eternal state. Okay, That's a common approach to Christianity, and I must say it's a growing approach since the Enlightenment a few centuries ago when the Enlightenment began, whereas in the Middle Ages the spiritual life encompassed all of life. You could see a couple, you know, after they work so hard planting a field, bow their heads and praying because the weather, the crops, your work, your daily life, your sweat are all part of a whole. They weren't segmented to going to church. And Matthew chapter 17 is telling us because Jesus fully became man. God became man and he demonstrated to us the glory of what's in store for us. I can remember in seminary, I took a class on evangelism in the modern world, and I was all excited about the class. I've told you about it before, but believe me, it it kept a lasting impression in my life because I had, before I even went to seminary, it was was a countywide uh, coordinator for Billy Graham Crusade coming to Tampa, Florida. So I knew about the big Graham Crusades and that type of evangelism. I did youth evangelism, prison evangelism, and all that kind of thing. So I thought, boy, what, what, what am I going to get? And we got to the class, and we were assigned one thing for the whole class. 100% of the class, he had us read C.S. Lewis. He believed, the professor, that C.S. Lewis was the best evangelist of the 20th century. And looking back, at first I thought, this is an odd class. I like C.S. Lewis, but then he made us read this trilogy of science fiction. And hey, I want meat. I want theology. I want you know, theological knowledge and stuff. I don't want to read science fiction in seminary, but it was part of my required reading. Well, the second volume in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy has a um, scene, I believe it was on Mars, that this couple had to go through a probationary period, kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. And at the end, they actually successfully passed their probationary period. And then this man who had been hijacked on a spaceship was peeking behind a big rock at this couple about to undergo their transformation. And as he peeked there, he, you know, he's kind of thinking this is going to be, you know, kind of like a, uh, you know, photography event, so to speak, after a baptism or first communion or something. And all of a sudden, just light exploded everywhere dazzling light was flashing all over the mountain ranges from these two couples. And it was an incredible scene, and only as Lewis could describe it. And I finally got, for the first time, 
what it means to be glorified and why Lewis said, if you could see the most humble person you know right now, that if you were to see them in glory, you would be severely tempted to fall on your knees and begin worshiping them as a God. And God is going to make us God-like. But the point being, all this begins now. You think, I'll get all that when I go to heaven is missing the jewel, the center of where Christianity started. They would say, this is what we are talking about. And it's in our catechism, but it's easy to run over. I have quoted section 1996 of the catechism several times when we have discussed justification and that salvation is by grace in the Catholic Church. And I'll repeat that first sentence of section 1996. Our justification comes from the grace of God. Now, uh, even Catholics who have studied quite extensively apologetics think that, no, Catholic justification includes works. It's faith and works. Well, that's true. But if that's the extent of your knowledge of Catholic apologetics and Catholic knowledge of justification, you're anemic. You're severely anemic. Because that section goes on to say, grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call and become children of God. Now, if you could sit under a tree for five years and just contemplate that one thing, what does it mean to be a child of God? And then it goes on to say, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. But becoming partakers of the divine nature doesn't begin in heaven. According to 2 Corinthians 3, that change, that transformation, that partaking of the divine nature and it's also in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, according to our first pope, we are partakers of the divine nature. That's part of the Catholic understanding of justification. Faith and works and grace, you're on the right track. You're running strong, but you don't finish the race. You don't get to the prize. The crown is partaking of the divine nature goes on, just skipping a section of the Catechism and going to 1998. God gives himself to us through his Spirit. By the participation of the Spirit, we become communicants in the divine nature. For this reason, those in whom the Spirit dwells are divinized. This, does this sound like foreign language to you, becoming divinized? Um, this is the change that God wants to work internally in us. Our bodies have to await the resurrection at the second coming. But the change, the transformation of the inner part of ourselves is right now, and so many of us are missing it. Let me tell you about one of the greatest misses of this in my life, okay, I'm holding in my hands what I consider the most effective apologetic and evangelistic book written in the 20th century. And sorry to all my friends who are Catholic authors, but it was by C.S. Lewis entitled Mere Christianity. Um, nothing is even a close second. 
this is one of my favorite Christian books of all time. I don't know how many times I have read it and referred to it and used it. But do you know when I when you get to the towards the end of mere Christianity, I had such a glorious falling flat on my face. I totally missed what C.S. Lewis was talking about. C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to the church father Athanasius, and Athanasius was one of the leading church fathers who were talking about our divinization, our undergoing this transformation that the Christian East knew about. But Lewis then took that theology and put it in 20th century language so that the average person could understand it. And yet, even with that great gift of Lewis taking it from the high shelf and putting it to the low shelf, I still missed it, missed it several times. And this is what I missed. The next step has already appeared. What next step? (laughs) Well, it's the next step in human life. But it's not the next life. It's not some eternal life. The next step has already appeared. This is what I've been trying to get at this this broadcast. And it's really new. And it's talking about us. It's not a change from brainy men to brainier men. It's a change that goes off in a totally different direction. A change from being creatures of God to being sons of God. The first instance appeared in Palestine 2,000 years ago, and it's something that comes into us from the outside. And then, this is so classic Lewis, he says, already the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. In other words, this next step This is for every single Christian. This isn't for some elite uh, believer and this and that. This is for your children. This is for your teenagers, your college students, for you, mom and dad, for priests and deacons. This is for all of us. But yet, like me, I'm just reading over my favorite book and totally missing the conclusion. So again, already the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. Some, as I have admitted, though, are hardly recognizable. Every now and then one meets them. Their voices and faces are different from ours, stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. But then he gives us a little thing why we don't quite recognize them. He says, they will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. How great is this? He goes, they will usually seem to have a lot of time. When you have recognized one of them, you will recognize the next one much more readily. And he says, I have a strong suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, even creeds. In that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society, but to put it in the very lowest, it must be great fun. That's from mere Christianity. And then Lewis wrote another book entitled The Weight of Glory. And that's what I was talking about, what happened to that 
prototype Adam and Eve in the space trilogy when they were glorified. And Lewis talks about the real ingredient of divine happiness. And, you know, we want to be happy in life and little shiny things are waved before our face and we go running after them. If I just grasp that, I'll be happy. But he says the ingredient in divine happiness is to be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. You see, what went on in Matthew 17 while Peter was jabbering away about making booths and such? A voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. There is a constant 100% love and reciprocal love from the father to the son and the son to the father. And what all this divinization and theosis and participating in the divine nature is talking about is you get plugged in here on earth to the love that the father has for Jesus Christ, his son. That's what it means to be a child of God. This is Christianity. And if this is discovered by anyone, old or young, they're not going to be conformed to the world. They'll be transformed. Let me just give you another quick reference. And it's from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It's the third time in the New Testament this same word for transfiguration changed or transformed is used. And St. Paul mentions in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world. And this is what's happening right now. The morals, the ethics, the worldview, the clothing styles, the whole mental framework of our modern world, including Catholics, are being conformed to the world, as St. Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The mind is where this goes on. And we need to focus on Christ in the scriptures and especially in the Eucharist. That's where St. John Paul II puts his finger where the Christian East, like the West, has a great appreciation for the Eucharist, but especially for the transformation that it works for those who are in Christ. St. John Paul II says, I recommend that Catholics avail themselves more often of the spiritual riches of the Eastern Fathers. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 455 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.